1: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eden. You may have heard that a little thing called the Olympics is going down in London for the next couple weeks. And so in the spirit of Olympic fever and in commemoration of the centenary of his Olympic victory, this week we're going to be talking about one of America's greatest athletes, Jim Thorpe. In 1950, in Collier's magazine, it was written, quote, Jim Thorpe was monumental, colossal. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eden. You may have heard that a little thing called the Olympics is going down in London for the next couple weeks. And so, in the spirit of Olympic fever, and in commemoration of the centenary of his Olympic victory, this week we're going to be talking about one of America's greatest athletes, Jim Thorpe. In 1950, in Collier's Magazine, it was written, quote, Jim Thorpe was monumental, colossal, and perfect. The others are only shadows in his wake. Today I'm going to be talking with Kate Buford about her new book, entitled Native American Son the life and sporting legend of Jim Thorpe. Hi Kate, thank you so much for being with us here on New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just start things off by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, let's see. I was born in California in Santa Monica. I'm a California girl, grew up there, but left and went to Europe and back east and have never gone back, but I still consider myself a Californian. Um, My first book topic was Burt Lancaster, the Hollywood actor and producer. So I think growing up in California had a lot to do with being attracted to the people in the movies and the importance of the movies in our lives. Um, I went to school back east, and I lived in Germany and in Paris, and eventually ended up in New York and uh, lived and worked there. Uh, My previous career was as a law librarian on Wall Street, which was fantastic preparation for being a nonfiction writer, because you had to be able to... Research anything and find it yesterday, and it had to be absolutely accurate, because in the case of these law firms, so much money was writing on it. so it was excellent preparation, and although I had no idea at the time that I would be writing, um, I got married, I had a couple of babies, and once they got to be a little bit older, uh, school age, I started to do freelance writing, and sort of threw up a whole bunch of balls in the air to see which ones would land, and the one that landed was the book about Bert Lancaster. And that got me started on biography.
1: Well, we're going to come back to that in just a second, but I wanted to start us out with kind of a strange question. Um, I was recently talking to Donna Munker, who's the acting chair of the Women Writing Women's Lives Seminar in New York. And we were both marveling at the role of gender in writing biography and how difficult we would find it to write the life story of a man. But both of your biographical subjects have been men. And the problems of men writing women's lives have been widely documented. But do you think there are certain challenges presented by writing about a man as a woman?
0: You know, I, I'm sure there are. I didn't find it to be a challenge. Um I didn't overthink it. Maybe that was the that was the answer. But you know, it's interesting. Uh Stephen Bach, the late great Stephen Bach, who was a uh, executive with United Artists and then wrote one of the great, great books about Hollywood called Final Cut, about the making of Heaven's Gate, and then went on to write biographies of Marlena Dietrich and, and um several other people, Lenny Riefenstahl, women actually. Um He was gay, and he said to me, you know, when you when I wrote about Burt Lancaster, he said, I achieved, he saw this as a man and as a gay man, a kind of detachment that was really good, that the reader could trust me as a woman to write about this fabulously masculine man and his physical beauty in the case of Burt Lancaster, which a man might have found difficult, a straight guy certainly, to write about. Um, and that was an interesting twist if that helps answer the question. Other people have commented on it to me. Um, I I maybe growing up with, you know, two brothers and a and a very masculine father, um, I kind of felt like I understood where they were coming from. And it interested me to cross over to the dark side as it were. write <laughs> about a man. And then of course several people have said, Well, not only just a man, but now Two very masculine men, Bert Lancaster, and then my God, the greatest multi sport athlete of all time jim Thorpe um but I think it's a really good question. I think what might be difficult for some... I would find it difficult actually to write about a woman i I haven't done that um why that is I don't know. I'd have to ask a therapist
1: i guess <laughs> <laughs>
0: um but uh. Men seem easy to read to me okay. um, as a gender <laughs> and as a biographical subject, um, <laughs> oh. but the gender doesn't enter into it to me anyway. And maybe I'm missing some huge things. I don't know. No,
1: no, no. I just think it's such a fascinating idea because the, the, she and I felt like we just we wouldn't even think of that. We were only interested in women and then that you had only written about men. I think that's fascinating. Um, so how oh. did you find oh I'm sorry. We –
0: well, I was just going to say, part of, part of what interested me about these two men, um, and this is kind of reverse sexism, I guess, was that they had such a huge impact on their respective sectors mm-hmm. movies in one case and sports in another, mm-hmm. and women traditionally would not have had as big an impact, unfortunately. So I wanted that big picture. I wanted someone who made that kind of an impact, and unfortunately, usually, that traditionally was a man, if we're talking about in the past
1: so how did you find what drew, i guess how did you find the story of jim thorpe because that's an interesting story as well right
0: yeah a fascinating story i mean the great sports story um burt lancaster played him in a warner brothers 1951 biopic called jim thorpe all american that still plays all the time on television um probably has done more than any one single thing to keep the story of jim thorpe in the public eye um So when I was doing research at USC at the Warner Brothers collection, I had to do research on the production of that movie and was so struck by two things. One, that it was such an amazing story, this great athlete, the greatest ever at the dawn of organized sports in America, turn of the century, into the 20th century. But also that from all over the country in 1950, while they were making the movie, people sent in postcards and letters to Jack Warner, the head of the studio, beseeching him not to mess up the story of their hero. And Jim Thorpe hadn't played a game since 1928. And you know, as a fellow biographer, we look for that kind of heat coming out of the past. Why did it matter so much to so many people that he be treated fairly, that his story be got right? And um, so I smelled a, a book, but I didn't think of it yet. And so then when it was time to choose the next one, I didn't want to repeat myself by doing the movies. Um, and Lancaster was fairly definitive. And sports, to me, was the common, pa- great common passion of our time. Mm. And let's look at the, one of the first and greatest.
1: So what sources were most helpful to you while you were doing this? The Thorpe book? Uh, yes.
0: Yeah, Yeah. yeah. Thorpe. Well, um, he ended up, as irony would have it, when he was finished with sports in the 1920s, oh. or the late 1920s, like many famous athletes at the time, he went to Hollywood to use his famous name and his physical dexterity in the movies. So um, I ended up really being the first person to write about this whole second career he had in Hollywood from 1930 to 1945. And so the Warner Brothers collection was very important and the Margaret Herrick, all the usual Hollywood sources that I'd used for Lancaster, I could use again. Um, for his sports uh career uh that sort of halcyon years from like nineteen eleven to nineteen twenty eight. Um the uh baseball hall of fame at Cooperstown, mm-hmm. the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, and it's there because of Jim Thorpe, and your listeners can read the book to find mm-hmm. out why. And um also the Carlisle um the Cumberland County Historical Society in in um Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And that was the site of the Indian boarding school that he went to and that he played football for and that made his reputation. And there were, in Oklahoma, of course, the Oklahoma Historical Society, where Jim was from, that state. Um, I spent a lot of time in Oklahoma and came to really love it. I never thought I would, but I did. So, those are the major sources.
1: Okay. Um, can you tell us a bit about his ancestry and about his early life?
0: Yeah. Well, he was, uh, five-eighths Indian. Uh, and the Indian, for those who have are native and are listening, um, he was uh, mostly Potawatomi, but was registered with the Sac and Fox tribe and with a little Menominee and Kickapoo. And those are all originally Great Lakes so-called woodland tribes. Mm-hmm. But like so many Indian peoples, his ancestors were removed, that was the government euphemism, forcible removals from their ancestral lands over and over again from the Great Lakes region, ultimately to Oklahoma where Jim Thorpe was born in 1887. His maternal grandfather was white. That's where the Thorpe name comes from. And um, his mother was Potawatomi and of um, French descent. And he was, his grandfather was of English descent. So he has this really, he used to call himself an American mutt. You know, he was a real mixture of influences. But he grows up on the very last days of the Sackett Fox Reservation in Oklahoma, Before this government policy of allotment was instituted in 1887, which divided these reservations into little tiny pieces of land and pretty much doomed much of the tribe to poverty. So he grows up in a really volatile, changing time when when Oklahoma, which was promised to Indians forever, and we know all these promises were never kept, is going through all the um, juggernaut that leads to statehood in 1907. So he sees radical, radical changes all around him growing up. And I think that marked him for life.
1: Yeah. The passages on his education were fascinating and heartbreaking at the same time.
0: Yeah, that's a huge issue now and has been for some time. It's reexamining this whole experience of the Indian boarding school movement. A um, hundred years ago, it was considered by so-called white reformers in Washington that the Indian race, as they saw, as they called it, was doomed to extinction. It was called the vanishing race. That was a favorite word. And it was thought that the only way to save them was to turn them into whites, to eradicate their native culture, make them learn English, um, cut off their hair if they were Apache boys and had long hair. And one of the best ways they thought to do this was to take the children out of the reservations in the West, because, of course, they'd all been moved west, even if they weren't originally... Western tribes, and shipped them off to these boarding schools, and the most famous one was the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and that's where Jim was sent off in 1904, and if you were sent there, you had to stay a minimum of five years, and you could not go home. You were forbidden to speak your native language. You were dressed, if you were a boy, in a kind of military uniform, and the girls in uh, calico, crinoline dresses, Um, and you... And it had all the the bad food and the horrible practices of really most sporting schools, but they were worse because there was really very little oversight. And the cruelty and the isolation and the loneliness was horrific. Um, Jim escaped a lot of that because he was such a great athlete. And like we see now with these problems, the NCAA and Penn State, only the most egregious and recent, the sports program and the athletes that were involved in it got special treatment. And so he actually was rather fond of Carlyle. He he was he escaped some of the worst practices that most of his classmates would have put up with.
1: He was also. This was an interesting time because it was kind of the formalization of football, right?
0: Yes, yes. And that was one of the most fun parts about yeah, the book, actually. You can tell it I mean, that way. yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but it was it was. Um, I love the history of sports. Mm-hmm. I love much more than I'm a, a, a present-day sports fan. Um, I think the reason sports developed a 100 years ago, and we're talking here about, well, baseball was already pretty much developed, but the modern Olympics, football, basketball, those are all going through radical rule changes. They're all startups at this point point a 100 years ago. And so Jim Thorpe and his famous coach, Pop Warner, at the Carlisle School They get to hit the ground running as the rules are changing, as, for example, the forward pass is legalized. So what do these games represent and why have they become so important was one of the main reasons I wrote the book. So delving into that background of these sports was absolutely fascinating. I just loved it.
1: So how did he get from the Indian boarding school to the Olympics?
0: He, uh well, it's a complicated story, which you can read about in the book, but essentially you have to look at Pop Warner, who becomes, people are probably familiar with his name to a certain extent because of the Pop Warner Junior Football League that's still very active around the country, but he became one of the most, um, after Carlisle, famous and innovative uh, collegiate football coaches, particularly at Stanford in the 30s, but he was also the track and field coach at Carlisle. He was the athletics director. He could do whatever he wanted. And he saw in Jim Thorpe, in addition to being a great football player, he was a phenomenally gifted on well, everything but track and field. Athlete for Carlisle, so he wooed him back. Jim had left Carlisle for a couple of years, um, never intending to go back. But um, Pop Warner lured him back to Carlisle in 1911 to play again for the football team, but also to train for the 1912 Olympics. It was only the fifth modern Olympiad. Now we're celebrating right now, next the end of this week, the 30th modern Olympiad. But that, back then, it was only the fifth and it was to be held in Stockholm. And uh, he persuaded uh, Jim to train and to try out and he made the tryouts and went to the Olympics in the summer of 1912, 100 years ago, this year.
1: Which must have been huge. Obviously it's an Olympics so that's a big deal, but then for a kid from Oklahoma to go to Stockholm in 1912, that's an enormous trip, right? It was huge. Yeah. It was huge. And even more huge
0: because there were only three Indians on the entire U.S. team. Mm-hmm. Um, two of them were from Carlisle. Mm-hmm. They had to be accompanied as wards by Pop Warner. Um, most of the other athletes were Ivy League or club athletes. Um, everything was brand new. Jim had never been anywhere except you know, traveling with teams to play on the East Coast. So to get on this fabulous ship, the SS Finland, and sail across the Atlantic to Stockholm, and then be in this beautiful city filled with aristocratic Olympians <laughs> was quite an experience. It was but he he was remarkably single minded. Um, he went to win and he knew he would win. The decathlon and the pentathlon, the two multi events in track and field. And the other athletes noticed about him that he had this almost unnatural calmness. And reserve, I mean, he just kept his mind on one thing, and that was winning
1: This is where we were read into a bit of drama um, because the i o c revoked his medals after yes. the Olympics. yes, what was uh, the cause for that?
0: those two years that he left Carlisle, he left, as I said, never intending to return. he had gotten he was in his twenties he'd gotten set up a school, he wanted to use his athletic strength to break in and make a career in the only sport that was organized then and and at at which you could earn a living, and that was organized baseball. It had leagues, teams, the whole deal. It was pretty much as it is now. So he had left Carlisle in 1909 and 1910 to go play for a minor league, not a Bush league, not a semi-pro, but a a bona fide minor league team in, in North Carolina to try to get scouted and break into the majors. He wasn't good enough. He didn't make it, which is how Pop Warner could lure him back in 1911. Um, but in those days, sort of doping as doping is now, the threshold issue for athletes in the Olympics, the big issue back then was amateurism versus professionalism. Professionalism is the dirty word. It meant you had taken money of any kind for playing any sport. And he, of course, had been paid. He'd been under contract with this minor league team. But they kept that hidden, uh, Pop Warner in particular, and he's the one you have to point the finger at because he was in charge of Jim. And Jim, I'm sure, was aware of what he was doing, but left it all to Pop Warner. And so Jim goes to the Olympics. He becomes the toast of the world, winning both of these very difficult events by huge margins. Um, and six months later, a newspaper scoop reveals that he had played professional baseball. And within less than a week, the AAU and then the IOC stripped him of his two gold medals, insisted the challenge trophies be shipped back to Stockholm, and eventually, by the summer, when the IOC had their official meeting, they erased all of his records from the official record of the 1912 Olympics. It was a huge scandal. I mean, many people have called it the mother of all sports scandals because its reverberations were international at a time when sports were so new and the Olympics were struggling to gain a foothold and be successful.
1: Did the response have anything to do with this ethnicity?
0: Not really. Um, I think, and this is a really important part about Jim Thorpe's story and one of the main things that I discovered writing it, back then anybody who wasn't a WASP, particularly in the Olympic hierarchy, was an outsider. If you were Irish, if you were Jewish, if you were Italian or Asian American or, or Indian or anything, you were not a part of, this, of the elite that governed the Olympics and in many cases, in most cases, governed the country and the aristocratic world in Europe. So Jim, people identified with this scandal. They identified with him. They felt he was rocked because he could have been them. He could have been any one of these other outsider groups. Um, for him personally, I don't think the Indian ethnicity had much, had as much to do with his rush to judgment as the fact that he was this outsider with no advocate. And Pop Warner ended up hanging him out to dry. On the other hand, if he'd been a Yale or a Harvard student, let's say, one of this elite group, he would have changed his name if he played those two summers in order to safeguard his amateur status. He would have been protected by somebody. Uh, Jim wasn't, and in to that extent, his, eth- his ethnicity did work against him.
1: Did the IOC ever make amends to him? Sort of um,
0: posthumously in 1982, after a long, this this issue would not die. People just kept, you know, um, beseeching the IOC, the AAU to reinstate him, and it was unfair to have stripped this great athlete of his honors for playing a sport that had nothing to do with baseball, et cetera, et cetera. And as time went on, the whole idea of amateurism became completely debunked and was called in the 1970s and 80s shamateurism. Mm-hmm. So by the early 80s, the whole mood of professionalism versus amateurism had changed. And under, after a huge pressure by a grassroots campaign, um, led by Robert Wheeler and Flo Ridlon and the Thorpe family, the IOC decided in um, the fall of 82 to reinstate Jim Thorpe as a competitor in the 1912 Olympics, but not to demote the original um, silver and bronze medal winners who had been elevated to gold and silver, respectively. So the official record now shows Jim as the as sharing the gold medal with... Yes the original two silver medalists, even though he'd beaten them by hundreds of points. And they specifically refused to reinstate his records in those 15 events. So it was, as Sports Illustrated called it at the time, the in the worst tradition of asterisk record keeping. It was a kind of a half-assed way to say, okay, we'll sort of let him back in, but not completely. So his records still do not stand, and they are the best proof that he was the greatest athlete, modern athlete of all.
1: Uh, Which is also proven out, too, as well, the fact that he went on to have a successful career in other sports after the Olympics, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And once once his cover was blown as an amateur in January of 1913, already the Major League Baseball teams had been circling him for years. You know, well, not since he'd gone off to play minor league baseball, but certainly since the Olympics, they wanted him to sign with them. Uh, as much, because he wasn't necessarily that good a baseball player yet, they didn't care. They wanted him for what was called back then the advertising value, the celebrity value, because people would come to see the greatest athlete play anything once, anyway. So he turns professional and signs with the New York Giants baseball team, which is now the San Francisco Giants. But back then, it was the big, bad New York team. It was the Yankees of their day. And... um it was a mistake in many ways, because you can imagine what if a, a guy who's never played really except minor league and not that well, gets dropped into the Yankees and put up to bat? I mean, it'd be, it'd be embarrassing, and it was. It took him a good five years to get as good as Ty Cobb the trueless Joe Jackson, two of the greatest hitters in the game, to master the art of baseball. But at the same time, in 1915, he starts playing professional football. That was his great sport, was football. And um back then, professional football, nobody paid any attention to it. It was played almost exclusively in western Pennsylvania and in Stark County, Ohio, where Canton is. Uh That answers the question why the Pro Football Hall of Fame is there, <laughs> because he put that sport on the map by um playing for and coaching the Canton Bulldogs to several championship seasons such as they were back then, and he was he was so successful that in 1920, the owners of the professional football teams that existed around Ohio and Chicago at the time um, banded together and decided to form a league just like the baseball sport had. And they formed what two years later would be called the National Football League and unanimously elected Jim Thorpe as its first president.
1: It's just so fascinating because you really don't see players anymore who have that kind of diversity, who can play multiple... Sports, um, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, Deion Sanders played for the Atlanta Falcons and the mm-hmm. Atlanta Braves, but they just, that doesn't really exist anymore, and it's so, the amount of skill required to do that is extraordinary.
0: Yeah, part of it is a factor that he was on the ground floor, you know, of, of the development of all these sports. Right. So the NCAA was only just getting started about 1910. There were so few rules and parameters put around this that he could try anything, mm-hmm. In addition to that, he simply was an unbelievably gifted athlete at any kind of sport. Um, and so he. for the rest of his life, he would lament that a young guy, or now women, of course, after Title IX, coming up couldn't try whatever they wanted and do it all. But you just can't. And as early as those Olympics in 1911 The Americans did extremely well at the 1912 Olympics, and already they were being blasted for being too specialized, for training too hard, all the things that, of course, have become typical of the sports in the century to come. Um, What's interesting about Thorpe, and needs to be said, too, and a a lesson, I think, for young athletes listening um, or their parents, is that what Jim did, and this goes back to his Indian childhood in Oklahoma, watching animals, wild horses and jackrabbits, He would watch animals, but also watch an athlete, for example, who knew how to throw the javelin. That was not one of his sports. Um, He would watch someone who was really good at that and memorize what they did and then visualize it. We now use that term a lot, but it wasn't used then. Visualize it in his head, and then he would go over and over and over it again in his head like a, a film loop, memorizing it. And then when he got on the field, he would do it. It was an amazing sequence that he went through.
1: So you mentioned the biopic, which has done a lot in keeping his story um, in the popular culture. How did that come to be made? And did he ever meet Burt Lancaster? Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, it came to be made because, uh, and this is another factor that interested me in doing the production background for the Lancaster book. In 1950, just as we saw in 2000, there were all these greatest of the half century polls, you know, of whatever, greatest scientists, greatest this, greatest that. And the Associated Press Sportscasters and sports writers. There were no TV yet, barely any, so they didn't count. They did a, a poll of hundreds of them to vote on the greatest golfer, the greatest baseball player, the greatest football player. Um, and Jim first won the greatest football player of the half century in 1950, and then the ultimate contest was, okay, who is the greatest male athlete of the half century? Again, keep in mind, he's played nothing since 1928. He was voted, again, by a huge margin, the greatest male athlete of the half century in 1950, with Babe Ruth a distant, distant second. Um, this encouraged Warner Brothers to make a biopic of his life, and they just signed a contract with Bert Lancaster, who was a very fine athlete himself, even though he was not Native American. <laughs> So they darkened his skin, darkened his hair, and he trained like crazy in order to be able to at least look good doing um the different sports. He'd never really played football, for example. And Thorpe was hired as a consultant on that film. So he hung around the football field in Los Angeles and watched Bert, you know, go through the motions and said he was sure he was never as handsome as Bert Lancaster. <laughs> and um he gave pointers to to Bert on drop kicking. Um, but pretty much kept quiet and watched. And did, actually did do some research on his own life at uh, a sports center in Los Angeles so that he could be sure that the uh, story was accurate.
1: Um, what did he do in later life?
0: Well, he died two years after the film was made. He died in 1953. But backing up a little bit, as I said, when he finished sports, he played two sports. He played bus- uh, football and baseball, um, all through the teens, all through the 20s. He even added basketball in 1927. Then he goes to Hollywood. He makes, I could find records for 70 movies that he appeared in. Often it's just an extra, you know, but nevertheless, it was a career. And uh, there could be as many as double that many movies. A lot of them were made um, for so-called Poverty Row studios that were churning them out, these 12-part serials that kids went to watch on Saturday afternoons, the Westerns. Uh, The records for those are lost. Um, But he had an active Hollywood career in um, the 1930s and 1940s. He went on the Chautauqua Lecture Circuit and spoke about sports all over the country. He also ended up being a guard at the Ford Motor Company in Dearborn, Michigan during World War II. And then he, in 1945, at the tail end of the Second World War, he had not served in the First War, and he really wanted to do his duty in the Second World War. And the only service that would take him, because he was pretty old by this point, in his late 50s, was the Merchant Marine. So he went on one trip with the Merchant Marine, uh, leaving out of San Pedro, California, and went around the world on a Merchant Marine ship, and by the time he came home, the war was over.
1: What do you see as his legacy?
0: I think he left an inspirational example of perseverance. Um, That word kept coming up so often in interviews on this book. Um, The common trajectory of his life is, you know, great glory and honors, and then a long, slow slide to oblivion and alcohol and this and that, and um, a hard, tough, sad life. In fact, and that was one of the great I think accomplishments of this biography was to go beyond 1913, go beyond 1912, the Olympics, and show that he accomplished so much. He mastered baseball, even though it was the one sport that didn't come easily to him, as it doesn't come easily to many athletes. He put pro football on the map. He goes out to Hollywood and, and becomes a spokesperson for the Indian group out there that came to get jobs in the movies. Um he just kept at it. he It was hard. It was the Depression. He had basically hardly any education, just his Indian boarding school where he played more sports and went to class. Um, he was tougher and accomplished much more than people have ever given him credit for.
1: So this is the centenary of Thorpe's Olympic Games. Do you think we can expect to see him honored in London in any way?
0: I've worked hard at that. Uh, the BBC has been fantastic. In fact, um this coming Monday on BBC Radio 2, there will be the last installment of a six-part series on the Olympics, and it will feature Thorpe, and I will appear on it. My voice, anyway, will appear on it. Um, there have been two other documentaries on Thorpe done by the BBC. Uh, one of them ran on July 4th and is still running in, in England on BBC Radio 4. Um, and it can be listened to on their BBC Listen Again. The medals were supposed to go his medals, the, the duplicate medals. They did not give him back his original. They couldn't find them. They recast in 1982 at the IOC, so-called reinstatement duplicate medals. They were originally scheduled to be on display at the USA House in London, which is usually the Royal College of Art. That's being turned over to the American team. Um, it was discovered that they were they qualified too much as museum artifacts, and it was too complicated to ship them over, so they will not be there. Um, other than that, no, they've renamed the Hammersmith tube stop, the subway, the Jim Thorpe stop for the duration of the Olympics. Um, and that's pretty much it. Um, it's, uh, they had a a lot of, of coverage of him leading up to the games, but, and this is normal, once the games kick in, then, you know, the contemporary athletes will take a look.
1: any idea what you're going to be writing about next?
0: Well, my agent and I have two ideas, neither of which has anything to do with the movies or sports. Um, I'm not at liberty to talk about them except oh. to say that one idea is about the American Revolution, mm-hmm. and it will be about two men. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and the other one, um, we're sort of seeing which one flies best. The other one is about New York City in 1931, oh, cool. um, which is a very scary year, and uh and I sort of a devil in the white city idea, which I think would be a lot of fun. So, yeah. stay tuned. One or the other of them, I will, I will be doing.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on New Books on Biography. Oh,
0: thank you, Oline. This has really been fun. I appreciate it.
1: I've been speaking today with Kate Buford about her biography, Native American Son: The Life and Sporting Legend of Jim Thorpe, which is now out in paperback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books on Biography. Thanks for listening.